Ladies and gentlemen, it is uh, with very great pleasure I uh, welcome you all back once again to the Invisible London podcast. I have neglected you all terribly. I'm very, very sorry indeed. Uh, Unfortunately, um, life gets in the way and when this is uh, a wonderful little hobby to have, but I just, uh, I found recently I couldn't really dedicate the time that I'd, I'd like to. So this episode has been brewing away for months and months and months and months. I look now and I can see it is about a year since the uh, the last... Uh, actually, no, it's about a year since my first podcast. So uh, happy anniversary to me. Thank you, everyone, for sticking with it. We've had... Uh, <laughs> we've had three episodes so that's what one every uh, four months so i look forward to seeing you all around october after this one uh but essentially yeah it's been uh, an interesting time the more i start looking into uh the weird things around london the more and more you start to find and so bizarrely i have sat down uh, on a number of occasions fully intending to uh, uh record an episode and just discovered, you know, something else entirely. So I think at the end of uh, our last uh, episode, I mentioned that we'd be starting in Trafalgar Square. And unfortunately, I've completely lied to you there because I've gone off in a million different directions. I've been poring over a a fantastic sort of six foot by six foot map I got of London. I've been plotting out ley lines. I've been marking on weird burials and, oh my goodness, and... Missing cats and oh god, you can hear as I'm going through my folder here. There's all sorts of uh, places we can go, but the most uh, genuinely uh, curious place I found uh, recently is going to be the subject uh, of the episode, and it's a really nice, easy one for everyone to uh, go and visit. You don't have to pay to get in. Literally, you can walk down the uh, the high street, and there it is, and. Uh, at first I thought this would be a fun little filler episode, sort of five, six minute chat, and the more I uh, looked into it, the more I, I even, I was uh, genuinely surprised at how uh, weird and wonderful uh, this could be, and that, you know, I, uh, this is going to be a, probably a, a slightly more uh, esoteric episode, we get into some pretty odd concepts here, um, I'll say from the off, I... <laughs> You know, if you're not too interested in magic, this one uh, may not be for you. I will also uh, point out straight away that I am probably going to murder the pronunciation of... I couldn't even say that, pronunciation. (laughs) Uh, Murder the the pronunciation of uh, plenty of words, magical theories, people's names. Um, I have actually uh, written the most uh, tricky ones down phonetically. So that should help me out there. But uh, before we go anywhere, I've got some uh, uh, some welcomes to make. We've got some new listeners, which is very exciting. It's not just you. Uh, but uh, first and foremost, these are all uh, new listeners from the last year. So we've got uh, Arthur and Lily, Powell. Nice to see you there. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we've got uh, Isabel Tucker. Uh, and her older brother Joshua, so there are um, uh, they've joined us as well. They're all down in Kent, huddled round the gramophone, listening in. Uh, and most recently, we've got uh, 
the young uh, Torvald Dark, who is uh, potentially our newest listener, who is, uh, I think, about a week old. So, uh, these are all my... Uh, uh, my friend's children who've been born in the last year or so, I think possibly since the last episode came out. So it's uh, very exciting to uh, force a little bit of magic and mystery onto them. Uh, right, so before we um, go any further, I will just get my pad of paper out. And, uh, well then, let's get to it. Um... Last time I left you, and we were in uh, Green Park, we were outside Buckingham Palace, and uh, I said we'd be strolling off towards um, uh, Trafalgar Square, and so uh, that's as good a place as any to start. If you're in Trafalgar Square, you you got your back to Nelson's Column, and the rows going straight down ahead of you is... Um, uh, what road is it? It is uh, it's Whitehall. And so uh, we're going to be walking down Whitehall. It takes uh, a couple of minutes, maybe five, six minutes, um, to get to where we're going. And uh, today we're going to be heading towards the uh, the main war memorial uh, of Great Britain. And uh, it's the Cenotaph. Um, Whitehall is an interesting road. It was literally the site of... Whitehall Palace, which was, um, I think it was a, a Tudor Palace, but it was this huge, huge palace that took up most of this area, all the way down to the Thames. Um, and there were stables and uh, obviously palaces and halls and uh, you name it, they uh, they had it. It was a, an amazing building. It, um, it was almost completely destroyed by fire. The only remaining part is Banqueting House, which is going to be on your left-hand side. There'll be signs outside on a, another day. I'm sure we'll come back here um, as you walk past the final window uh, on the uh, the first floor. You can see these huge sort of curved windows. Uh, the last one there, um, as you walk underneath that, uh, you'll be walking past um, the site where uh, King Charles had his um, head chopped off. So uh, you're in one of the uh, the only sites in Britain where uh, a modern king was uh, was killed, so that's uh, something exciting to think about. But also the same uh, in this area, uh, we know that, um, Henry VIII married Anne Boleyn. Uh, William Shakespeare's uh, plays were performed for the first time uh, in these palaces as well. And uh, yeah, it was a uh, an amazing building. You can again, if you get onto uh, the internet, you can see sort of artist representations and sketches and things of what it looked like. But it was a really incredible palace. It was. Um, um, uh, a fascinating building, again, almost now completely lost. But uh, as we uh, as we carry on going, it's interesting to note that you uh, the cenotaph was built uh, a uh, a boundary point between two streets. The cenotaph marks the end of um, Whitehall and the beginning of um, Parliament. Excuse me, as my phone goes. Um, but uh, yeah, so um, Parliament Street and, and Whitehall, this is a boundary marker. And this is uh, quite a significant place to put a, uh, an important memorial, uh, memorial, excuse me. And often in, when you look at, uh, excuse me, um, when you look at um, 
ancient pathways, if you if you ever um, look at things like ley lines, you'll notice that important boundaries and often um, uh, way markers are often put in on these uh, intersections between uh, two streets. Uh, there'll be a either a standing stone or maybe a well or a market um, square or there'll be usually you know this important boundary zone between two hugely important areas uh, are often marked with a significant um, uh, a marker in the cenotaph acts uh, as the boundary stone here between Whitehall and Parliament and uh, the cenotaph, I'm sure you'll recognise it, it's that uh, huge Portland stone memorial um, to the uh, uh, dead soldiers originally for the First World War. It's become to be associated as a memorial site for soldiers from every um, war now. Uh, but uh, most importantly, uh, the First and Second World War, the dates for both of those are carved into the stone and it's always it's, it's a great memorial this one because it's not sort of locked away behind uh, fences it's not in the middle of the countryside it's there bang in the middle of the city uh, uh, it's a very imposing really quite um, uh, it's yeah I, I can't think of what the word is it's just that it's a it's a really remarkable bit of sculpture I think it really does speak to people it's Design has been copied all over the place, um, not just by the the guy who originally designed it, who we will be getting on to, uh, obviously, that's why we're here. Um, but, uh, you know, there's something incredibly significant about it. And uh, for years, it's uh, it's been an interesting uh, memorial to look at, not just because it's, you know, you see it literally every year on TV and they, they have the uh, the march pass for the army. Um, but it's a... Uh, it does... It, it carries itself, you know, into your mind, and it's it imposes itself on the whole area. And uh, I think again, the nicest thing about it is you can get right up close. Obviously, you know, there's a bit um, a bit of controversy around in the park. I think a couple of years ago, Top Gear were filming a sort of street race past it, and they thought that was incredibly disrespectful. And then before that, that kid um, during the sort of student riots was dangling off one of the flags and uh, really caused a lot of upset. So it's um, it certainly worked itself into the sort of uh, popular consciousness of the country as a, an area uh, demanding respect. So actually, I'm a little bit nervous about uh, <laughs> going into uh, what you know could potentially be an awful lot of nonsense that <laughs> I've been researching over the last few weeks. But um, uh, to uh, mark my eyes that I'm, I'm not disrespecting any of the, the war dead or the great significance behind this building. And actually, in fact, I think um, the reason why it has worked its way into the, uh, the popular uh, consciousness of the country is uh, because there is something deeply um, important, dare I say, magical built into the very foundations of those stones. Um, so... Uh, if you've been listening and walking, we're, we're probably just coming up on it now. You've gone past 10 Downing Street, um, which is always rather busy. But uh, if you get here, you can um, have a little sit down. There's a, I think there's a little sort of um, low wall you can have a sit on or just have a stroll about and look. It's a, 
it's actually on a, its own island in the middle of the street, so if you're standing on there, you're not going to be knocked down by any buses or anything. Uh, fingers crossed, touch wood. Uh, right, so here we are, the Cenotaph. Um, it was designed uh, and built by um, a chap called Edwin uh, Lutchens, uh, which I hope I've pronounced properly, Lutchens. He was born in uh, 1869, died in 1944. So again, he's lived through this sort of real... Uh, incredibly um, uh, busy sort of thrusting uh, time when uh, there was this huge amount of uh, upheaval both politically, culturally, um, economically and uh, uh, Lutchens is, again I didn't really know an awful lot about him until I started doing the research but uh, um, as I did you suddenly realise you know all these great things that he was uh, involved in, he was described all, all over the place as uh, literally Britain's greatest architect since Christopher Wren, uh, you know, if not better. Um, someone else, a guy called Ian Nairn in the book Buildings of England says, the genius and the charlatan are very close together in Lutchens, uh, which I think is uh, a rather good design, that sort of uh, a man straddling madness and genius. Um, and uh, particularly as we look closer at his work, I think you'll, uh, you'll see what we mean. Uh, he is, uh, in his early life, up until about 1900, most of the works he was uh, known for were homes, um, uh, private homes, usually for the sort of uh, middle to, to upper classes. They are, I hate to say it now, but they are sort of fairly unremarkable. They are quite grand. Um, they're sort of Tudor knockoffs almost, a lot of um, stone walls, uh, Tudor beams, and uh, it's sort of a house you would uh, walk past in the village and think, oh, that looks rather nice, and then never think of again. Um, but he, he tapped into uh, a sort of rich seam of uh, uh, well-to-do folk who wanted houses designing in that sort of old-fashioned style. Uh, and particularly his work um, was featured very often in uh, Country Life magazine, which had just come out. It was the... Uh, you know, I, I don't know what the equivalent is. Probably uh, country life <laughs> today, but uh, yeah, it was the one that everyone uh, wanted to be um, seen uh, in. You know, if your house was in that, you know, you'd really made it. Um, and so he, uh, I'm sure he got a lot of work through uh, through being featured there. He got his name out there. But uh, interesting, by around uh, 1900, his whole architectural style changes literally almost overnight um, and he moves away from this sort of mock Tudor uh, into something much earlier he goes very very uh, classical with it uh, so you know his influence comes from um, ancient Roman and uh, Greek building designs uh, very mathematical very uh, geometrical um, symmetry proportion uh, these suddenly become his sort of uh, key trademarks, which he repeats uh, time and time again in all these sorts of buildings. In the later commissions, he, he suddenly goes from designing uh, houses for rich folk to designing um, these huge war memorials, um, whole new cities uh, he designed as well, New Delhi in India, the sort of jewel in the British imperial crown, um, this new great city to show the world uh, how far uh, Britain had come was, um, you know, fell to this guy who had been uh, designing, you know, two, three-story houses. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an incredible um, career he has. Um, 
he first uh, got into the world of sort of public memorials um, was during um, uh, some discussions uh, in around 1916, 1917, during the First World War, and they realised that there was just so many war dead, uh, it would be impossible to repatriate um, everyone there, obviously, even if they could find all the bodies of the lost, uh, the lost uh, soldiers. And so uh, the, the British War Graves Commission was set up to mark... Um, these grave sites, and to set up um, a, uh, uh, a formal uh, British war grave uh, system over in France. Uh, the key feature decided for this, um, these war graves, uh, they all wanted to have them uh, to be sort of fairly um, uh, formal and um, you know, identical in design. So they wanted to have some key features they could use over and over again, but they also wanted... Um, uh, a memorial which wouldn't touch upon um, uh, one faith above another. They didn't want a, a Christian uh, burial ground. They wanted it for everyone because even you know by this point there's um, all sorts of creeds and, and faiths fighting in the British Army and uh, not all of them Christian. So uh, Lutyens came up with this idea of a, a stone of remembrance, um, which was his sort of addition to the War Graves uh, Commission. It was. Uh, decided that in sites of a thousand or more graves, these uh, huge carved stones would be, um, would be set up. His idea was to commemorate all faiths and none, uh, going back uh, to this sort of very early classical theme before um, religious um, uh, building work had really sort of taken over, which I know is a stupid thing to say because the classic buildings are based on temples. Uh, I'm sure that wasn't lost on uh, the... Uh, uh, the people designing these things at the time, but they didn't want um, a very obvious um, church or uh, synagogue or mosque or you know, nothing that would be uh, too overt. Uh, and so this lack of any religious symbology um, was absolutely key. His solution, uh, he first writes to his wife, uh, who's a fascinating woman in her own right, we will get more to uh, her, genuinely we will get to her in a minute, um, but in July 1917 he proposed a, a solid ball of bronze uh, that would be the site of all these, um, you know, the key point of all these war graves, um, but it was uh, too expensive, but the image of these huge spheres are uh, returned to again and again in his designs, uh, including the cenotaph, but uh, there's more on that in a moment. Um, but he quickly settled on a, uh, a large stone altar raised on, uh, would you believe it, three steps, that magic number three, that sort of great uh, echoing vice that seems to come through uh, a lot of these uh, strange subjects. But uh, yeah, three steps deemed uh, the magic number there. Um, the geometry of this stone, uh, he said, was based on the Parthenon. Um, which is the sort of the high point of classical architecture. Uh, it was three and a half metres long, a metre and a half tall, uh, and designed with very subtle curves to the surface, uh, which is called, uh, and again I'll murder this pronunciation, um, entasis, entasis, um, E-N-T-A-S-I-S. Um, this is uh, entasis. Uh, you may have heard mentioned before when it's... Uh, comes to classical buildings, but it is the uh, the addition of um, convex curves to surfaces, uh, usually sort of um, uh, vertical um, support structures. They design them with this uh, convex curves. They bulge out slightly uh, for aesthetic purposes. Um, when no one's entirely sure, 
even to this day, why they uh, would bother to go to the effort to do this. Uh, the great theory is that it's to, uh, from a distance, um, if you didn't have these subtle curves, uh, it may look like the, uh, the pillars are actually bending in on themselves. And so it was a, uh, a way to make these buildings look uh, more impressive and more uh, symmetrical from a distance. Um, they do, we do know it does add strength to a building. Um, but, uh, you know, literally uh, nearly every famous building in, in ancient uh, uh, history has these subtle curves on there, from the pyramids uh, to the Incas to um, temples in Tibet. They all have this sort of uh, uh, curving... Um, uh, bulge in them. It sort of it makes it look like the uh, the weight of the stone is is, is pushing down and, and pushing it all out. Uh, it, it brings to mind a uh, you know almost energy ready to to burst out. And so you see it time and time again. And uh, yeah, it did. It cost extra money. You needed uh, much more skilled uh, carvers to produce it. And uh, it's uh, it's uh, this wonderful uh, ancient mystery there that no one quite knows why that's there. But it's a, a key part in classical design. And so Lutchins demanded he would have it in his designs as well. So uh, the top portion, this this uh, stone of remembrance. I will get to the cenotaph soon, I promise. Uh, but the Stone of Remembrance uh, was... Um, uh, this top portion was curved, just a fraction of an inch on all sides. Um, but if you continued that curve all the way out, if you would get out, out and out and out, uh, it would make a ball um, 1,801 feet 8 inches in diameter. And uh, nearly 560 of these stones were carved. Um, that tiny curve, though it's, it's literally, I think it's about an eighth of an inch from the centre to the edge, um, he insisted it be put there. Um, uh, and again, it adds a huge amount of extra effort to, to, you know, to put these subtle um, uh, curves into the stonework. Uh, and again, he never quite admitted why he, he thought that was important, but the, the globe, he, he wanted that almost subconscious uh, image of the curve to be uh, planted in your brain. Uh, these abstract designs were um, not as well received as he, as he might have hoped. Uh, he had to argue his case an awful lot. Uh, a lot of bishops um, who were involved in the process of designing these war graves, because you know the war is still going on at this point. It's a hugely controversial and uh, important uh, subject. Um, and many people thought... Um, uh, bishops, vicars, all thought it was it was too pagan. This great uh, pagan uh, sacrificial stone uh, in a uh, in a war grave uh, area was deemed uh, uh, rather beyond the pale. Um, but also on the other side, people were saying that you know, this is too overtly a Christian altar. Uh, he argued it both ways himself, uh, which is interesting when he writes to different people. He's a great man of letters. Lutchins is always writing. Um, and uh, if you ever, again, if you Google these stones of remembrance, it's worth having a look because, you know, there's there's no getting away from the fact that this is a sacrificial altar of some sort. Whether your mind goes to pagans or to uh, church on Sunday is uh, is probably down to you. But uh, Lutchins himself described it uh, as a monolithic altar. Um, uh, again, there's it, all these weird sort of classical echoes that come back through um, the Parthenon, which he, uh, he sort of based his design on. It was the uh, the temple to Athena. Uh, once again, uh, the entarsis on the Parthenon means that uh, if you 
followed the curve which all the columns make. Uh, they all extend up to a point exactly one mile in the air. So again, there's this huge uh, geographical, um, not geographical, sort of geometrical um, uh, design that goes into it. And the Parthenon, I think, still to this day is deemed to be the high point of classical architecture that, that still exists. But uh, uh, Athena was the goddess of, of wisdom, uh, of war, uh, of handcraft and, uh, and heroic endeavour. So I think uh, if uh, Athena would very much approve of the... Uh, uh, the war graves and the great uh, the handicraft that goes into carving such a stone. Um, Athena, interestingly, again, has also been the basis for um, a lot of other uh, images you see. Um, the Statue of Liberty is based on uh, Athena, uh, as is um, Britannia, um, the uh, that sort of female vision uh, of Britain. And uh, early Christian writers thought that she was the uh, the model for everything evil about paganism. They had no, uh, they really weren't fans of Athena. So she was the sort of uh, uh, the great witch that Christianity was trying to to fight against. Um, again, we're going back to the more esoteric ideas with these gravestones. The uh, every single British war grave in Europe, uh, uh, they all face east. Each single one uh, in the graves are also all facing east. Officially, this is to show that the uh, the soldiers were always facing the enemy. But uh, I think more importantly, that means that they're all, uh, they all face into the rising sun. Every morning the sun will come up. Um, the stone of remembrance is on the, the farthest east. Uh, the sun goes over that stone first and then uh, onto the graves of the soldiers who are all, yeah, facing towards the rising sun, which is, uh, again, a hugely uh, symbolic uh, little fact which uh, shouldn't be overlooked. But how does all this relate to the, uh, the cenotaph, the monument uh, in front of us now? Uh, I would say this was a, a culmination of uh, all of Lutchen's magical thinking. He, had, uh, he was working towards this sort of a huge outpouring of, I think, an awful lot of considered um, hidden imagery, uh, which is all revealed in the uh, the cenotaph in front of us. Uh, firstly, the name uh, cenotaph. It's um, that is. I do have it written down somewhere. It's a Greek word, I think. Uh, do excuse me. Here, yeah, yeah, Greek. Uh, for empty tomb, um, it's a tomb or monument erected in honour of a, a person or persons whose remains are elsewhere. Uh, and again, not only is this sort of a, a classical idea, but it also harks back to obviously you know, the most famous empty tomb, uh, which we've all heard of with um, Jesus after the crucifixion. So they they, they bring all this religion their uh, religious imagery in. So uh, here we are, we're looking at, uh, I hope, even if it's just a, a photograph, we're looking at the cenotaph. How is this, uh, this um, monument encoded with uh, any sort of magical significance? Uh, each side, each four um, planes 
they all taper in. They aren't curved. They are they are just at an angle. Um, they taper up to a uh, a point which is exactly 500 foot above the centre uh, of the cenotaph. Every single horizontal surface is again curved to produce a sphere with its centre exactly 500 foot below the ground. So from the top of the cenotaph, um, that curving ball would uh, jut from the earth and then its centre point would be 500 foot from the, uh, from the top. 500 foot beyond that you'd have uh, this sort of great uh, spire uh, formed by the two sides. A spire in the sky in a globe buried in the earth. Uh, and this, my theory is anyway, uh, this is a, uh, a hidden, uh, it's an, a, literally an occult, but very physical uh, manifestation of the single most important tenant in uh, magical thinking. Uh, that's a phrase I'm, th I'm sure you've heard before, but uh, as above, so below. Uh, this phrase is a keystone of many religions. Um, uh, religious iconography, uh, I'm sure there's too many to list here, but uh, in statues of gods and goddesses, so often you see them depicted, uh, the, the right hand raised, the left hand uh, pointing downwards. Um, uh, it's almost always that way around, yeah, right up, uh, left down. Um, also, again, um, in the words of the Lord's Prayer, uh, thy will be done uh, on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, on earth as it is in heaven, as below, so above, above, below. Uh, these things are always mixed uh, and come formed together. Uh, the original writer is uh, uh, who uh, formed the phrase, as above, so below. The spire in the sky, the globe sunk into the, the into the depths, um, comes from uh, the the so-called uh, Hermes Trismegistus, uh, the thrice great Hermes, uh, and this guy. Um, again, apologies for the uh, murdering of his uh, pronunciation of his name, uh, but he was a, a combination of the Greek god Hermes um, and. Uh, he was the god of uh, sort of communication messages, uh, but he was also um, uh, it's a Hermes Trismegistus is a mixture of uh, Hermes and the Egyptian god Thoth, uh, the god of wisdom. And uh, supposedly there were these huge numbers of papyrus written by um, this god held in Egypt, and there were spells to bring forth uh, divine spirits, uh, talk to the dead, uh, bring these spirits into statues and icons, so uh, you could have a sort of a, a physical uh, statue in your home or temple which could deliver the words um, from all these ancient uh, wise men or gods. Uh, the best known of these uh, tablets is the so-called emerald uh, tablet, which states... I'm so sorry, bear with me once again as I whip through my notes here, the emerald tablet says, uh, that which is below corresponds to that which is above, and that which is above corresponds to that which is below, to accomplish the miracle of the one thing. Um, and so, uh, what does that mean? Uh, that has been sort of taken to mean that there is a, an eternal link between the, uh, the divine uh, as well as the human, as the gods do in heaven, uh, so uh, can we also do on earth. It's the idea of the uh, 
the microcosm, you know, yourself, your thoughts, your words, your deeds, and the macrocosm, the universe. Uh, if we can understand one, we will be able to understand the other. Uh, if you know yourself, you will know the meaning uh, of everything. So it was a, uh, again, it's, it's, it is one of these cornerstones, I think, of an awful lot of religions. Um, but uh, yeah, Hermes uh, came up with this whole sort of uh, religion. This, uh, it's called Hermeticism. Um, the tenet of as above, so below is tied into to this. And uh, Hermeticism uh, is the sort of the doctrine uh, of those who follow the, the writings of, of Hermes. Um, it states that there is one true theology that is present in all religions and that was given to to us by the you know the great one true god whichever one that is uh, that was given to us uh, in antiquity which has later been described through uh, different um, wise people and teachers and prophets uh, and it becomes the world religion as we have now but uh, way back in the mists of man's past there was uh, one way of knowing god and, uh, and i think the idea being that um, uh, through studying of ourself and gaining this this wisdom, uh, it, uh, all the truths will be revealed, and that, uh, the, the, everyone can be uh, their own god. To understand God is to understand yourself, and and vice versa. Uh, again, this is it, it sounds pretty nuts, but this was you know a hugely uh, popular belief at the time. Um, the greatest Semitic scientist we had, Isaac Newton, uh, he was a follower uh, of these uh, these beliefs. Um, interesting as well, tied in with hermeticism, um, which goes all sorts of places, you know, sacred geometry and tarot and, oh my goodness, you can go all sorts of places with this stuff. But um, uh, all tied into that is also the, the idea of reincarnation and that uh, uh, it's all part of these beliefs and that uh, you can go through uh, many repetitions and cycles uh, before we uh, hasten off to the stars. So... Uh, It's interesting that these, what seem very strange uh, beliefs, are very much part of our scientific process now. Um, again, as I said, Isaac Newton, he was described as either the first of the great scientists or the last of the great magicians. Um, I think nearly a, a third of the writings Newton left behind, I think if not even more, um, were all based on um, these sort of weird philosophical uh, ways to try and understand the universe. His ultimate belief was that um, there was one ancient pure doctrine which could unlock human understanding of the world, um, and uh, it was you know, the uh, he was literally uh, an alchemist looking for a way to transmute uh, base metal into gold, and which is again not quite the um, uh, the way it's depicted in the Harry Potter stories. It's not a stone which would um, help make you hugely rich. The idea being that you could turn yourself the base metal the base thing of this universe and unlock the divine and it turn it into um a pure golden um wise godlike substance i think you know not to become all powerful like uh, you know thanos clicking his finger and, and wiping out the universe but to uh, unlock true wisdom and understanding but why would a victorian architect encode these hermetic ideas uh into this sort of monument um, 
that was the first question I asked myself when I was I was reading about these uh, these ideas. Why uh, would Lutchins um, be interested in this? You know, he started his life designing uh, quaint but expensive homes for the upper classes. Um, you know, he was a, a celebrity designer. Um, this is uh, you know, from doing my research into him. He was a very shy. Uh, person, so it seems uh, almost a world away from where he starts off. How he how he ends up as this uh, hugely important designer of of the British Empire, but uh, I think the key point of his life. Uh, remember, his building style changes uh, very much in the, about 1900, uh, and I say this is uh, because in 1897 he uh, he met and he he married uh, his wife, obviously uh, Lady Emily Bulwer Lytton who's a wonderful, remarkable woman. Um, and she sort of fully embraced this wonderful uh, questing existence. She was forever bent on understanding the, the mysteries of the universe. And uh, quite honestly, I think she was uh, a fairly accomplished magician in her own right. Uh, she was, and this is all true, uh, <laughs> I'm not, not making this up, uh, she was an apprentice uh, in the Order of Universal Co-Freemasonry. And she took part in a, uh, a Votes for Women uh, march. Uh, when was this? Uh, 17th of March, 1911. She took place at the head of this, um, uh, this march uh, in her full Masonic regalia. Um, in uh, endless letters, they would write an awful lot back and forth. Um, Lutchens was often away on these building projects and, and didn't want to take his wife uh, with him because he felt uh, it was, uh, he was often staying with uh, his um, literally well, his employee his employers so uh, he'd be there on site in these houses and he thought it wouldn't be very fair to to bring you know uh, his whole family with him so uh, a lot of their relationship was uh, committed through letters and uh, they would i think they would share the course of their daily lives and they no doubt shared many um uh, discussions on their belief and, and personal philosophies and so i don't think it's any surprise that some of these masonic ideas uh are unlocked into luchens as well i did do some research I, he never uh, as far as i know was never a uh, a freemason himself but there are some very strong links which as i'd like to say we will get to in just a moment um the uh actually yeah the the interesting luchens he was um well, I haven't been able to find out if he was a mason. He could well be. Um, but, however, his his wife clearly was. Uh, he was also chosen to be the uh, the chief judge in an architectural competition to design the, the new Freemasons Hall, which is uh, just around the back of Covent Garden, on Great Queen Street, I think, uh, which is an interesting... Again, I think, I was thinking about that today, uh, the Freemasons Hall on, on Great Queen Street. Again, whether that's harking back to a, an earlier sort of female goddess... Um, being in control of uh, these things, I do not know, but I think it's quite fun to speculate anyway. And uh, but if you if you look at the Freemasons Hall, uh, if you go onto Google Maps and search for it in um, Central London, you'll see that it is laid out uh, to look like a, um, a Masonic square and um, compass. Uh, and so he was the the chief judge design uh, picking the the winning design for that competition uh, and i'm sure he probably had a, a, a say in uh, in some of these uh, designs he uh, he knew there um he was an expert uh, was an expert in these uh, ancient and classical building techniques and practices um and he was again familiar with concepts of adapting uh, shape space light uh, to influence the impact of a building uh, on an individual or a group um 
uh, if you ever look at some, he built these memorial arches for some of the uh, British war graves as well. And uh, uh, it is there's one which is this hugely geometric design. It's sort of three or four arches built on top of each other with huge stone pediments over the top. And I was struck at how similar it looks to some of Hawksmoor designs, um, uh, which are again Hawksmoor has this great sort of mystique about him being this ancient pagan, uh, almost satanic uh, architect. He was trying to encode these very strange secret uh, uh, ancient mysteries into the building that could only be unlocked by those who, who knew what they were looking at. And I rather like the idea that Lutchins, again, with his classical ideas, was, uh, was bringing this forward to the Victorian era. Um, again, you know, is this me just um, putting these magician's ideas onto Lutchins? Uh, the answer's no. Uh, he's, again, very famously, he, he was given the contract to build the uh, the British Medical Association headquarters in, in Tavistock Square. Uh, again, this is 1911, so just before the war. Uh, nothing strange about this, uh, of course, except that this wasn't going to be the uh, the British Medical Association uh, this building was going to be for the, the Theosophical Society. Uh, and uh, uh, the Theosophical Society, um, it still exists uh, today. Their aims are to revive uh, ancient spiritual knowledge from the hidden masters, uh, also the study and classification of occultism, the Kabbalah, mysticism, etc. And to, this is a direct quote, uh, to investigate the unexplained laws of nature and the powers latent in man. Uh, if that isn't a direct sort of translation of, the, uh, of what the uh, um, hermetic... Um, uh, the study was trying to to, to, to unlock in people, then I, I don't know what is. Uh, this man was literally building a modern magical temple to unlock in powers that he believed um, were in all humans. I don't think um, you would approach a building project of that magnitude if you didn't have um, a certain uh, interest uh, in the uh, in the subject and uh, and again who was a a leading member of the Theosophical Society uh, none other than his wife Emily um, and so again we get back to this point how was the, the cenotaph involved with this magical thinking um, well it's encoded with that magical tenant as above so below without knowing it you are staring at a spear into the sky and this huge uh, sphere that plunges into the ground both uh, equal in in height actually no well the the, the globe is, is is twice the size uh, twice the size of this this huge sphere but it's they're linked together the um, you know with it's pointing skywards and it's pointing straight down into the ground um, this magical tenant, as above, so below, the, uh, the, the theosophical uh, ideas, uh, the hermetic ideas, uh, essentially this is um, the very nature of um, magic. This is as basic as magic gets. Um, there are three sort of prongs uh, in all magical works, the three parts to unlock uh, the wisdom of the universe, or so the uh, theosophical society claim. Uh, and these three prongs being alchemy, uh, the operation of the sun, the transmuting of, uh, of base metal into gold, uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the 
gosh, I just, uh, yeah, the sort of, you know, the, the clay into porcelain. Uh, but uh, the operation of the sun, again, this is encoded with the globe. Uh, the other, the second prong in the, uh, the magical aims is um, knowledge of astrology, the movements of the stars, the heavens, understanding uh, the movement of these planets, how they might relate to uh, aspects of our own life, how they may uh, give us a clue as to what will be happening. Uh, again, looking into space, the, uh, the great spire uh, pointing upwards out of the, uh, out of the uh, cenotaph into the sky. The final path, the final prong uh, in the three-pronged attack of, of uh, magical thinking is, uh, again, another word I will murder, but it's uh, theurgy. Theurgy. T-H-E-U-R-G-Y. Uh, and this was the practice of uh, rituals um, uh, performed with the intent to uh, invoke or channel the presence or power of God, uh, of angels, of spirits, uh, in order to perfect oneself. This is uh, the way of trying to bring uh, the wisdom of God down into yourself, not only to um, better your own understanding, but that of other people as well, to have a bit of uh, divine inspiration. Uh, so Lutchens encoded a, a symbolic globe into the cenotaph. Um, he encoded a symbolic astrological spire, uh, guiding our eyes towards the heavens. Uh, so there's that's two of the three prongs. What is uh, that third point? How do we... Um, see the uh, uh, the magic how do we channel that uh, divine power well uh, for that you would need a uh, a fairly uh, uh, big uh, magical ritual and uh, that is exactly what we get here uh, I did see a little quote where a, a, a guy on the same sort of track as me researching this says that uh, uh, from his calculations that if you stand in Whitehall at uh, 11 o'clock on the 11th day of the 11th month, the, uh, the sun, if it's a clear day, will be shining directly down Whitehall onto the cenotaph. And uh, the, uh, the cenotaph itself has always had a, a power to uh, elicit a very powerful response from, from the people who see it. Uh, originally, um, they didn't have enough time to make it out of stone when it was first unveiled, and so it was a, a wooden plaster um, mock-up. It was a rough mock-up of what it was eventually look like for the first commemoration uh, of peace. This took place in July in 1919, so not the, uh, the current sort of memorial day that we have on the 11th. But within four days uh, of this plaster, uh, facade going up. 1.2 million people had travelled across uh, the country to come and see it. Um, it was never designed, or they never intended it to be permanent. This was uh, going to be moved uh, eventually. They thought it would just uh, it'd be too disruptive to have it uh, where they placed it, but uh, the British public said absolutely no way. Uh, even Lutchens himself, when uh, the government uh, proposed it be moved, he says, uh, this has been qualified by the salutes of the Allied armies and no other site would give it this pertinence. And uh, I think there we see a man who is not just saying, you know, this is the place it should stand, but the fact that 1.4, uh, 1.2 million people walking past to see this great 
divine, magical uh, statue that he's produced um, have worked somehow to make that site uh, something special, something magical, something powerful, uh, or the echoes of which we still feel today when we stand here and look at this thing, and you feel that stillness and uh, the mystery of it, and uh, you know that great sense of feeling. I, I love the idea that uh, the, the, the will of generations of people has have forced these cold stones to become something much more powerful. Uh, again, interestingly, when they first commemorated the war dead, they did it in July. They uh, they weren't hoping for. Um, uh, well, I think actually no, they were hoping for you know just uh, good weather more than anything. But uh, a year later, the memorials now take place uh, on the eleventh day of the eleventh month at the eleventh hour. Um, this is probably the time to point out now that the, the cenotaph is also 11 metres tall. There is no uh, coincidences when you get into this uh, sort of design work. They knew exactly uh, what they were doing when they designed it at that height. Uh, 11 Again, when you look into something like numerology, it's this hugely important uh, special number uh, that uh, wonderful, weird magician Alistair Crowley, uh, or Crowley, I should say, rhymes with holy, that's what he always said, Alistair Crowley, uh, stated that 11th uh, is the number of magic uh, in itself. Uh, he said that number 11 was the sort of the number for the new eon uh, that he was bringing into uh, existence. Uh, the Book of the Law, his famous book, uh, was dictated to him by an angelic being uh, called Awas, A-W-A-S-S, uh, who stated uh, as he was uh, sort of divinely talking to Alistair Crowley and as he was... Crowley, sorry. Uh, he said that um, this angelic being says, my number is 11, as all their numbers who are of us. Uh, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I even wrote that down. I have no idea what that means. But uh, no, it seemed uh, 11, for whatever reason, is this divine, uh, uh, powerful number. Uh, the 11th hour, the 11th day, the 11th month, that is the, the, that repetition again of the number three which um, uh, reinforces uh, the sort of magical properties of anything. Uh, again, if you really want to get into it, uh, 11, 11, 11, add them all up, 33. Uh, again, this number which has this mad, incredible Masonic significance, there's 33 degrees or, uh, or levels to attain uh, the highest um, Masonic understanding. 33, uh, obviously the age uh, that the great master Jesus um, uh, reached before he died. Uh, also, it's the, the number of uh, vertebrae you have in your spine. Uh, 33. I think that there's uh, often been suggested that uh, the magical number 33 probably comes from yeah the uh, your spine and the the progression up from a your very base level at the bottom of your spine up to that seat of wisdom and knowledge in your uh, in your skull. But uh, rather interestingly, uh, as I was doing all this research. Um, uh, on the dawn to the number eleven, I, uh, I I picked up my phone, and it was uh, it was one minute past eleven in the afternoon, and I had eleven percent battery power, and I even I, I took the time to jot that down in my notes, uh, so it was uh, one of these wonderful little coincidences, which, as we all know, there is no such thing as coincidence.
Uh, why is it that I've been you know harping on about this number eleven? Um, it wasn't chosen specifically because uh, of any mag- uh, magical significance, was it? You know that was when the war ended. We all know that. Um, except, of course, we're all wrong because the war didn't end at eleven o'clock. It ended uh, in France at eleven o'clock. So it was it was ten o'clock in the morning in London. That's when the war ended in Britain. So that's when, if you think about it, that's when we we should be remembering it. Um, We should all be there at 10am, because that's 11 o'clock French time. That's when everyone (laughs) had stopped. When we're there at 11, we're getting there an hour late, Um, which I didn't realise until now. And then it's not until you think about it, well, if we got there at 10 that's not a magical number, is it? That's not an important number. That's not a significant number. 11, 11, 11, that's something that every, you know, school child in the country could probably tell you. Um, there's something that resonates with that idea that we waited until 11 a.m. on the 11th day of the 11th month uh, to, to bring an end to this war, to end all wars. Um, and I think that essentially, you know, that is probably one of the the bigger clues that there is something um, significant happening here at the the Cenotaph. Um, It said that a magic spell, uh, literally in its truest form, uh, is nothing more than uh, ritual uh, plus uh, intent. That uh, is the very uh, most basic magical spell. this could be anything. This could be, uh, you know, putting on your, your lucky socks to go to a job interview. It could be um, uh, slapping a statue on the foot as you walk past on your on your way to work. You know, the you could even say that the ritual of um, stretching out uh, your muscles a certain way before a race uh, could be a sort of magic spell. It's something you do uh, with ritual intent with the hope that something will happen. And... Uh, what could be more ritualistic, uh, I think, than uh, than building this huge, vast, empty tomb uh, dedicated to the glorious dead? You know, not even um, our glorious dead. This is the glorious dead. This is this is every uh, every soldier, literally, almost. You could argue anywhere. The glorious dead. They could go back generations. This this uh, you know, for anyone who's ever uh, died in the service of Britain. And uh, they built it from uh, literally magical Portland stone, uh, the same stuff that the greatest temple in our city, St Paul's Cathedral, is made out of, uh, the same stuff which uh, Buckingham Palace is made out of. Um, there's significance there. And uh, again, you know, if you want a magical ritual to, to really get going, then you need to invite some of the most important people uh, literally in the world to be there and you get them to to bow before it uh, in silence uh, offering symbolic garlands of flowers uh, and then you can march the army past uh, and have you know one million heartbroken people walk past it uh, each one focusing all their love their sorrow their pride uh, their devastation uh, onto that one spot and then uh, you know if you do it at the most uh, magical time of day on the most magical day of the year uh, then I think what we are doing um, is uh, yeah I think is potentially one of the the biggest um, secret magical rituals that uh, probably ever takes place in this country and has probably ever taken place in this country. Um, That said, 
you know, I think uh, that's our smoking gun. That is Lutchin's magical thinking. There, that is, you know, he's a, a grand wizard performing a magical spell. Unfortunately, I've got absolutely no idea what that spell was intended to do. Um, whether it was this idea of reincarnation, is it uh, um, willing everyone uh, who we've lost uh, back into uh, some other um, uh, life, is it to, uh, is it just a, a, some sort of spell to bring a bit of peace and comfort to uh, those of us left in the families of uh, those who have lost someone? I, I don't know, but uh, no, in the end of all this, um, sometimes there aren't any answers to, <laughs> to these things. And uh, it's, uh, it's just this wonderful, this wonderful building, uh, this wonderful monument, um, which can contain so much, uh, which is built by these fascinating characters who have these weird, wonderful lives where they uh, build things based on ancient magical principles in the hope of capturing that spark of divinity and, and bringing it to people on Earth. Um, well, uh, we've got to the end. Um, there's not a huge amount to say, um, except there's a chap called Andrew Compton uh, who wrote a little article called The Secret of the Cenotaph that touches on an awful lot of these um, uh, ideas that we've discussed here. And you can find it online. And um, it was an interesting piece, but he said... Uh, this uh, this monolith, uh, you can also see it as the, uh, if you look at it from a distance, it looks as if it's a, a handle of a great sword uh, plunged uh, into the ground, sheathed and frozen in stone. He said this is the, uh, the symbolic image of that sword in the stone. Um, again, the, uh, the mark of a king which comes back to Britain right when we needed it most, pulled... Uh, the sword, um, you know, unveiled the power of the country, became king, and and, and set us right, King Arthur, with the with the sword there. Um, this is a really interesting image, and I do see it. It it, it, it doesn't take a huge leap of faith to not see that as a handle of a sword. Um, but uh, except, the interesting thing is, um, that's not the sword in the stone because that uh, actually did exist and uh, that'll be the subject of our next podcast um, so I think we'll have to leave it there from uh, me in my palatial uh, spooky studio uh, I'm going to tuck in now to my uh, can of ghost ship um, which is the official beer of uh, the Invisible London podcast uh, and so ladies and gentlemen Thank you, everyone, for uh, listening. Uh, thank you for putting up with me for my ums and ers. I hope I haven't been uh, too um, uh, far out with this one. Uh, I hope you do get a time to uh, have a little look at the Cenotaph on your uh, your next journey into London and um, whether you take any of this with a, a pinch of salt or um, you think it's all <laughs> completely true. Uh, well, it's all down to you. But uh, no, I think it's it's one of these wonderful um, uh, bits of um, 
sort of physical sculpture that uh, certainly elicits a, a big, strong response when you look at it. Um, again, as I say, uh, I don't want to take away from um, it as a war memorial, and I think obviously first and foremost that was why it was built and uh, designed, but uh, I think... Uh, the more you look at it, the more you can see that there is uh, something special, uh, hidden uh, and invisible there. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been George Sanderman. Uh, have a lovely evening.